Blog Talk Radio. Leslie Gist, uh, you listen to the Gist of Freedom. We have on the line uh, two great artists. Uh, can you please introduce yourself to the Gist of Freedom? Hello? Okay, maybe we don't have them on the line yet, uh, but uh, I'm looking for Nora and Derek. Okay. Derek and Nora, are you two on the line? Hello, Derek? Nora? No, I'm not hearing anything. Hello? Can you guys hear me? Sorry for the technical difficulty, but we will be right with you in a moment. Leslie Gish, you listen to the Gist of Freedom. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, I can Great. hear you. Okay, I don't know what happened earlier, but let's get right to it. We have a live audience waiting 
awaiting your performance, and I told them how great you are, so I don't want to interrupt. We have Nora Cole and Derek McQueen, and we will formally introduce them at the end of their performance. Thank you so much. The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood and human veins. My soul has grown deep like the river. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo, and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers. Ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the river. My people. The night is beautiful, so the faces of my people. The stars are beautiful, so the eyes of my people. Beautiful also is the sun. Beautiful also are the souls of my people. Still here. I've been scarred and battered. My hopes the wind unscattered. Snow has freezed me and sun has baked me. Looks like between them, they done tried to make me stop laughing, stop loving, stop living. But I don't care. I'm still here. Madam's past history. My name is Johnson, Madam Alberta K. The Madam stands for business. I'm smart that way. I had a hairdressing parlor before the Depression put the prices lower. Then I had a barbecue stand till I got mixed up with a no-good man. Because I had an insurance, the WPA said, we can't use you wealthy that way. I said, don't worry about me. Just like the song, you WPA folks take care of yourself, and I'll get along. I do cooking, day's work too, Alberta K. Johnson. Madam to you. Harlem. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load? Or does it explode? The heart of Harlem. The buildings in Harlem are brick and stone, and the streets are long and wide. But Harlem's much more than these alone. Harlem is what's inside. It's a song with a minor refrain. It's a dream you keep dreaming again. It's a tear you turn into a smile. It's the sunrise you know is coming after a while. It's the shoes that you get half sold twice. It's the kid you hope will grow up nice. 
It's the hands that's working all day long. The prayer that keeps you going all along. That's the heart of Harlem. It's Joe Lewis and Dr. W.E.B., a stevedore, a porter, Marian Anderson, and me. It's Father Divine and the music of Earl Hines, Adam Powell in Congress, our drivers on bus line. It's Dorothy Dorothy Maynard. And it's Billie Holiday, the lectures at the Schomburg and the Apollo down the way. It's Father Shelton Bishop and Shelton Mother Horde. It's the Rennie and the Savoy where new dances are born. It's Canada Lee's penthouse at 555. It's Small's Paradise and Jimmy's Little Dive. It's 409 Edgecombe or a cold water walk-up flat. But it's where I live and it's where my love is at deep in the heart of Harlem. It's the pride all Americans know. It's the faith God gave us long ago. It's the strength to make our dreams come true. It's a feeling warm and friendly given to you. It's that girl with the rhythmical walk. It's my boy with the jive in his talk. It's the man with the muscles of steel. It's the right to be free. A people never will yield. A dream. A song. Half-soled shoes. Dancing shoes. A tear. A smile. The blues. Sometimes the blues. Mixed with memory and forgiveness of our wrongs. But more than that, it's freedom. Guarded for the kids who came along. Folks, that's the heart of Harlem. Projection. On the day when the Savoy leaps clean over to 7th Avenue and starts jitterbugging with the Renaissance, on that day when Abyssinia Baptist Church throws her enormous arms around St. James Presbyterian and 409 Edgecombe stoops to kiss 12 West 133rd, on that day, do Jesus. Manhattan Island will whirl like a Dizzy Gillespie transcription played by Inez and Timmy. On that day, Lord Sammy Davis and Marian Anderson will sing a duet. Paul Robeson will team up with Jackie Mabley. And Father Divine will say in truth, peace. Peace. It's truly truly wonderful. Wonderful. Awesome. That was just awesome. I want to thank you for the wonderful performance. Um, let's start with uh, Nora. Um, Nora, how did we meet? Just tell the audience how this uh, show came about. We were at an event at St. James Presbyterian Church. It was um, a celebration of naming the street after Dorothy Maynor, who was the co-founder of the Harlem School of the Arts. Great. And... Uh, the Derek and I uh, read some Langston Hughes poetry for the uh, ceremonies. And Derek, how did you find out about this event? Well, I'm a member of St. James Presbyterian Church. It's where they're caring for me so that I can be ordained um, at that church. And we've been trying to figure out ways to really 
um, enlivened Dorothy Maynard's memory and her presence in the church for quite a while, and the naming of the street coincided with our efforts. And so when we had the opportunity to rename the space that we were in, the Dorothy Maynard Theater, we knew that we wanted to have some sort of a coming together of artists because when she she left the opera world, there's a wonderful African-American um, opera singer, and she left the opera world when she married um, the then pastor of St. James, Shelby Rook. But then she started this incredible music program and an arts program within the church, and the Harlem School of the Arts actually started in St. James Presbyterian Church, and then when it was incorporated, it moved over into the buildings that are right next door to St. James to this day. So I've been involved in that church congregation and in this legacy for quite a while now. Um, are you aware of the connection between Underground Railroad and the church? St. James actually started, um, it started a long time ago, but it started actually downtown. So the buildings that we're in right now, we don't have much of the, of the other congregational histories, but we're pouring through these old documents that we found that are over 117 years old that are sort of detailing a little bit more about the building and the construction. We do know that there is a river that runs underneath the church and because that was Alexander Hamilton's homestead um, up there up there on Convent Avenue and up around that hill so that the water was down where St. Nicholas is. So there's actually a waterway that goes underneath where Alexander Hamilton would have come to get his water. So knowing the history of Alexander Hamilton and fighting for freedom, you know, we're piecemealing and putting these pieces together. How exciting. That Now, I didn't expect to hear all that, but I'm so glad I asked that question. Um, it's, it's simply incredible. Now, when we talk about Dorothy Maine and we talk about the artists, how um, did you, Nora, get involved um, in this craft? Um, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and I had a teacher in elementary school who made it her business to make sure that we went to the theater. We either went to the theater or to the orchestra. And I chose the theater, and when I saw my first play, I said, that's what I want to do. And she checked out the company, and she found out that they had summer classes, and I ended up getting a scholarship to the summer classes. And then I was in that company for all through junior high school and high school. Okay. And I'm it's reading a your bio. company now. I'm okay. sorry? Okay, I'm reading your bio, and you've been on Broadway and off-Broadway and international. What's some of the um, highlights that you like to share with our audience as far as your um, Wow. Um, <laughs> I did Jelly's Last Jam on Broadway um, opposite Gregory Hines, and then I went on to do the tour for a year with Maurice Hines. Um, that was with George Wolfe as the director, and I also got to do with George Wolfe, Caroline or Change, at the National Theater in London for five and a half months. Uh, there were three of us um, Americans in the company there, and the rest was cast in London, but they brought back the original um, creative team, uh, Tony Kushner and um, Janine Tesori, the composer. Uh, that was quite exciting. Um I worked with Vinette Carroll for 15 years. I met Vinette when I was in school at the Goodman School of Drama, and 
she said, she was a guest artist, and she said, well, you know, well, if you come to New York, look me up, and, you know, it's like, okay. And I did come to New York, and within two weeks, I started working for her, and I spent 15 years of my career with her. Um, um, I did Your Arms Too Short to Box with God, several incarnations of that, on Broadway, touring, in Paris, um, she gave me opportunities that uh, still no one, no other director or theater company has matched since. Uh, she allowed me to do gospel and classics and contemporary drama, and I learned a, a, a lot from her. Is she? Um, what is she doing now? She is deceased. Okay. Which I have to say. Um, Vinette Carroll, one of her other shows was um, Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, I mean, she hasn't been deceased that long. It's been about maybe five years. But her name has already, you know, uh, not on the lips of a lot of people. But she, I would say, I, I'm, I think Vinette was the first black woman director on Broadway. Wow. And um, that is huge. Mm-hmm. So, would you uh, compare her to a Dorothy Maynard? Oh, absolutely. I mean, but she, the Vinette, Vinette started as an actor, but she was a director. And being in the position of a director and uh, directing on Broadway, uh, you're that's a tough circle of people to. Uh, you're playing with some big boys. And um, uh, so she was up against a lot, but she she produced a lot, and uh, um, she she really drew huge strokes on big canvases. Uh, canvases. That's the kind of theater that she did. Excellent. And Derek, the same question. What uh, what are the, your highlights as far as your career? Well, you know, it's funny. I'm sort of the one of the, the stereotypical stories, I started singing in the church when I was six years old <laughs> and fell in love with the arts <laughs> through that. And I actually wanted to be a minister when I was growing up, but the emotionality of it was so raw for me. I felt like, I honestly felt that I was too vulnerable for it. So I said, well, what I'll do is I'll take up acting because that way I can fake the emotions on stage. And little did I realize that getting into that, that that was just as emotional and just as um, just as real for me as well. So I ended up getting my BA at the um, at Drew University in theater arts. But um, as Nora just mentioned, once you get once you start directing, you get that directing bug, and you sort of want to find ways to bring different communities to the communities that you speak to, um, and that are part of you. You want to figure out how to bring them into what you're doing, which is what it sounds like what the next in such a beautiful and passionate mm-hmm. way. And so I've been spending the rest of my life trying to put myself in positions of helping young people and helping people who don't really get an opportunity to to express themselves through the arts, giving them a platform. For example, when I was in Cape May, I was the um, the, the chairman of the board for um, the Cape May Theater down there, which was a wonderful opportunity for me to be able to do wonderful programming within the community. I was. As, as my goal down there in Cape May was to get the community involved in the lives of young people and get young people involved in the lives of the community. And we did that in a myriad of ways with the Cape May Jazz Festival. We started an entire youth component in a scholarship program. Um, and I, 
I've been under the tutelage of, of a, a wonderful jazz musician over the past 15 years who just passed away as well. His name is George Mester Hazy, and he is a uh, Grammy-nominated um, mm. composer, arranger that worked with Shirley Horn during the last years of her life. And he really was able to help me sort of fine-tune and move myself up to higher levels. So now I tour my Paul Robeson show for the Eastland Theater um, Company around the country, which tells the life of another unsung, unspoken hero in our community, Paul Robeson. And it tells his life through not only just the words, but through the songs that he sang. So I sing about 17 of the songs that he sort of made part of his repertoire while telling his life story. And so that's one of the major things that I do. But I'm also, as you know now, I've taken a sojourn into seminary and got my Master's of Divinity, and now I'm getting my Ph.D. in um, preaching in New Testament, homiletics in New Testament. And bringing all of those artistic skills to bear in this field has been a great benefit for me. I graduated with my Master's of Divinity in worship in the arts and bringing, bringing artistry and bringing... Um, the African-American community experience into new ways of looking at, um, at scholarship with New Testament. So that's really what I'm sort of forging now as I move forward is how, do we, how can we re-explain our community experience in these texts that have so often been thrown at us and how can we re and reimagine them and make them come alive and off the page again through the context of our experience um, as our community. So that's really where... I find myself at this day. <laughs> well, you, you two are extremely busy. The one thing I heard from the both of you is that you have mentors. And, oh, yeah. And I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking, and I know you mentioned that, that you work with um, children, and you, you work with them at the Cape May and I and with the um, Harlem School of Arts. I was wondering, do you have anybody that uh, you're mentoring, Nora? I I don't. I don't, actually. Um, I do teach at Eastern Connecticut State University. I go there every other year and direct a show. And um, Well, that is a form of mentoring. It is a form of yes, mentoring, and I, um, I, I don't have children, but I have about 17 nieces and nephews. Okay. <laughs> right. So I'm always trying to be up in their lives as well. Um, you know, I have to say, last night I saw a little incident unfold. I was in my car down at South Street, and I noticed this young black guy, boy, he was probably about 15, and he was with two white girls, and they were on one side of the street, and another there were two other white boys on the other side of the street, and they just hadn't crossed the street in time to be together. And just as the black boy and the two white girls were getting ready to cross the street, these two guys ran up and stopped him. And they 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 made him let them check through his book bag. And they had on blue T-shirts, and they had security on their and I'm watching this. I'm at a at a light, and the light is changing, and people are honking behind me. The streets are tiny down there. And they, you know, gave him his bag back and sort of patted him on the back and let him go on across the street. And I stopped him. I said, young man, I said, they didn't frisk anybody else's bag but yours, right? And he said, no. 
And I just didn't have, I wasn't quick enough on my feet to say, let that be a lesson to you or tell your parents about it when you get home or even to just get out of the car because these guys came out on the street to Mm. stop him. He wasn't on the pier down at South Street where there was a concert or some kind of event going on. And, I mean, this boy, you know, if he was 15, he looked 12. Um, Mm. And I just, when you talk about mentoring and uh, there's so many situations that I know I find myself in on the subway or just, Mm. you know, moving about, and I feel inadequate a lot of times because I don't feel like, uh, like that situation, I wish I had carried it further or something. But that is a form of mentoring also when you can't you know, catch Nora, it. It's so powerful, that experience that you're saying, because that brings to mind exactly what I was going to be talking about in terms of mentoring. Mm-hmm. The way that our culture has changed and the way that we've sort of isolated ourselves from our communities in so many different ways, just making sure that we are a real presence as adults in our community, especially for our young people, mm-hmm. that is a new form of mentoring because we're not seen as that. We're right. not seen as being present. And just stepping out of the shadows and being present has worked miracles and wonders in young people's lives. I've heard the stories afterwards because I also did some social work with teenagers for about 15 years down in Cape May, and you would be amazed at how that one moment of stepping out of the shadows Mm -hmm. Um, for a young person can actually support them and change their lives and alleviate some of the the pain that 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 kind of an incident can can follow someone through the rest of their lives in in terms of giving them and dishing out to them. Just that stepping out of the shadows is is almost a new way of mentoring because we've gone into the shadows as communities and as adults and and, um, and in our our formal mentoring programs. So you are I think correct. what you're talking about is, is very powerful and very important for for people to understand. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for two reasons. We just had Gloria Brown Marshall, a constitutional law professor, on less than a week ago to talk about stop and frisk. And there's mm-hmm. a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit that was just um, approved by the federal government. So um, there are changes in the making. And and this mentoring, I think how we met shows how the mentorship has changed um, its platform. I was mm-hmm. elated to see that we had young people at that Dorothy Main mm-hmm. um, event perform and that it was yes. in a church, not on Broadway and not yes. off Broadway. And I hope that, that that sort of thing catches on, that you can have shows, you can have mentorship through the arts, not just in, in, on a school stage, but in a church, on a basketball court, you know, you can take your performances any and everywhere. And with that said, um, Nora and Derek, but Nora first, how could you transform that experience into art, a play, a one-woman show? Uh, well, like <laughs> because you're very passionate right now. I think this is a moment where you could get that, some writing done quickly. Well, I'll tell you how it works for me. I um, I started uh, researching my family history, uh, I will say, in the 80s. And I did it because my grandfather had a newspaper in Louisville, Kentucky, from 1917 to 1950. It was called the Louisville Leader. And I always heard about him. I'd hear stories about him. And when I was growing up, people would say, oh, you're, you're I. Willis Cole's granddaughter. And 
I never knew him because he died before I was born. And I started asking my grandmother questions about him, I mean, personal questions, and, you know, who was this man and everything. And he really was a tough cookie. He was a tyrant. But I find that a lot of black people who were entrepreneurs, as from his era, they really were because that's how they got things done. But anyway, I... This is pre-computer, so I used to, when I would go to Louisville, I would drive to Frankfurt, the capital, and go through vital statistics and the census, and I was just digging and digging and digging. And I got to a point where I um, was trying to figure out how to combine all of that information with performance, because I actually have an, an archive. Uh, my grandmother saved almost every letter that anybody ever wrote to her from the early 1900s. Uh, she died in the in the early 90s, and and she and she kept her mother's letters and photographs and wow. different aunts. And the stories are just amazing, and they're actually my family stories. Mm-hmm. So that became the subject for my second solo show, which is called Voices of the Spirits in My Soul, and it's based in part on my family's slave history in Kentucky, and uh, part of my set are three photographs, three family photographs. One is of my great, great grandmother, I mean, she's in a dress with a bustle, so you know how old this picture is. There's another photograph uh, that is early 1900s and one with my grandfather and his whole family around him that is probably in the early or the mid-30s. But, um, in fact, some people think I get these pictures out of magazines, but they're actually from my family's archives. And that's how... I have been able to combine my passion about who I am in this culture mm. and being an artist. Uh, my first solo show was an ode to adolescence, but it's autobiographical. And I, I started writing because um, I wanted to create work for myself when I wasn't working because if you're an artist, a performing artist, a show always closes and a film always wraps. And I wanted to see a reflection of what I grew up in, in Louisville, Kentucky. I loved where I grew up. I loved the school that I went to, and the teachers loved us. Can um, you go into depth and explain and give us a well, description? Well, I went Take to, us there. Give us a bird's eye view I, of your neighborhood. I grew up in a, a, a little suburban community that was built just for black people to live in, for black people who could afford a starter house, post office workers, teachers, factory workers. And I didn't know it at the time, but I went to an elementary school that was built specifically for us because they did not want to integrate us into any of the other schools in the mm-hmm. county. Consequently, all of our teachers were black. Um, Nora, a I lot have of to, them I, were I, our Sunday I, school I, ha- I have to interrupt you there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a... It gets under my skin when I hear people say because they didn't want to integrate us. Do you oh, think we wanted? Do you think we would have built it, to build the schools, even if they did want to integrate? Do and I we, think what now? Do you think as a people we were going to build schools no matter what? Not just that wasn't the motivation that they wouldn't let us in. 
but we wanted our own schools. We just wanted wanted to have education. But that wasn't the case. And at that time, it wasn't about wanting our own schools. It was about integrating so that you would have a better education, so that mm-hmm. you would have a better facility, because because all black um, uh, facilities a lot were inferior in a way. But we had teachers that knew our families. They cared about us. They and a lot of our teachers were our Sunday school teachers. Mm-hmm. And Sunday school used to be an cool. extra uh, 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 um, emphasis on reading and presentation. <laughs> so you got, you know, if you got a double that, double. That was my point, that the schools really already existed before the building. The yes. schools existed within the church. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The, the school building came much later. The education came through. The church used to be the school, the social setting, right? Absolutely. I'm going to let you go on. Just explain from your experience how important that church was. And wasn't it instrumental, and I don't even know your story, but wasn't the church very instrumental in building the school? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, it just carried over. It was community. Right. And, you know, those little Easter pageants and Christmas pageants, I mean, I had a little repertoire. <laughs> I used to go to teas and and recite the creation. <laughs> that was yeah. for the building fund. Repertoire. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, right. yeah. And that and, and, and that is our history. Get up there and mess up or 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 or, or pronounce the word wrong or mm-hmm. stutter or because. You knew that you were supposed to rehearse and rehearse and go over it and go over it, and you wanted to be the best that you could be. And like I said, our Sunday school teachers were school teachers for the most part. Mm-hmm. And, Nora, wasn't it wonderful when you first were introduced to Shakespeare and you realized that you have been reading the 23rd Psalm and Iambic Contaminator all along <laughs> because of your King James Version? So you knew what the other students didn't know because you've been hearing it every Sunday. You've been asked to read and, you know, the King James Version. So I actually had a leg up, and the right. first class I ever took was Shakespeare because of church. Wow. <laughs> right. And, and that was the point I was trying to make earlier, that the church was always mm. instrumental. It was the first oh, school. Oh, absolutely. It was it our first been school. been my foundation for sure. Right. Absolutely. And, it, and we had something called Hush Harbors. Before there was right. a, a church, we met in the woods, in the bushes, anywhere. And places called Hush Harbors, and they, and they doubled as a, a school and a church. Um, we recreated um, we recreated in one of our worship services. We recreated the experience of Hush Harbors in our chapel service. Um, it was all spirituals and all prayers, and we went from with group to group in different. We have a very large chapel here at Union Theological Seminary in New York, and we went from space to space and in little clumps, so that our worship actually had to move from space to space so that we wouldn't be found out. It was one of the most powerful and moving experiences I've had of worship um, to actually physically recreate that and to create that with light and create that with sound and create that with that feeling that somebody is all, that you always have to be on the run by making us move from spot to spot. Um, just to physically reenact all of that um, in a worship setting for me was really, really powerful. And that's what I love about what you're talking about, Nora, is is and getting that feel because Louisville, Kentucky, 
is a is a is a wonderful little little gem of a place that <laughs> was able to hold all of this at the same time and you speaking to this story to your life story and your family's life story as a piece of what's shining off of this gem of Louisville at this time is a very I can't wait to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward mm. to seeing those pictures too. Are you sharing them on the internet or um I have one up right now, but I don't have uh, I don't have all of them up. No, I don't. I'm working on it. Okay. I'm working on it. <laughs> well, they're popular. I mean, um, when I share uh, pictures from that era, I get a lot of hits and likes. So, um, and I'm proud to say that you know people are proud of our history. Um, oh yeah. And, you know, it was one time where people were ashamed because it was just you know slavery. Uh, Lincoln, Harriet, Mont King, and that was it. But now we're um, valuing your story. And we mm. feel, you know, as Absolutely. everyone feels connected to your story, even though my story is from Patterson, New Jersey. I'm mm-hmm. just as proud to know that there were black people that had a black town. Um, mm-hmm. And was in this position, you know, we are we are one in that sense. So that's why I have this show, to show that, there's so many stories of black history, and black history is made through you. It's made through your grandmother's right. letters, um, and we need to share them and talk about them, not just in February, but um, any chance we, you know, we get. Any chance we get. Right, and what any you did with that, what you did with that young man um, during that Stop and Frisk event is part of black history. The mm-hmm. story right. that you're telling on this show is black history, so... Um, I thank you um, for talking about your personal stories and your upbringings, both of you. Can we now move on to Langston Hughes? Yes. yes. <laughs> now, who who is Langston Hughes? For the young man that you helped out the other day, if you had to tell him who he was. Oh, Derek is probably better at this than me, um, because I will say, as a performing artist, I think Langston is probably the most recited black poet ever. Yes. I know I have done so much Langston Hughes poetry for different events, and mm-hmm. um, uh, he actually has this poem called, it's an epic poem called uh, Ask Your Mama, mm. 12 Moods for Jazz, with an original score by Hale Smith, and I've done that mm. before with a band. And um, but in in as far as I know and understand and know, Langston Hughes was a poet during the mm. Harlem Renaissance, and he loved black people and he loved mm. Harlem. He came here to go to Columbia University, and in so many of his poems, he describes the neighborhood, he describes Columbia right. and his time at Columbia and what it was like for him being black and being at Columbia and then the all the diverse life that was going on in Harlem. Uh, and he was just this great observationist that mm. just took it all in and put it down Love in poetry. poetry. Wonderful and and same question. And you know when I when I when I when I read Langston Hughes, I very much liken it to the to the the trajectory of what happened with spirituals and and how spirituals brought us through so many hard times. And then, as there was a certain point in history um, where we started, where Alfred Tinley was more joyous in his um, 
affirmation that God will bring us through, we'll understand it better by and by. And then we get more into the plaintive blues kind of spirituality and then the gospel music. Well, Langston Hughes brought all of that um, into poetry, and it's, it's sensual and it's beautiful. And for that young man that is sitting there um, who has just been crisp, as Nora just mentioned, when I say, when I read with that young man, what happens to a dream deferred? Mm. It makes, I want us both to sit down and really re-examine and redefine what that dream is. Mm. To pick that dream back up. If it may have been dropped when they, or taken out of that bag when they frisked you, and you may feel that your dream is not worthwhile. Langston asked you a question. What happens when your dream is put on hold? So that you can't lose touch with that dream. Right. And Langston, I was saying also with Nora that Langston also, he loves black bodies. He, and at a time when we, our bodies were swinging from trees, he was celebrating our bodies, celebrating our eyes, celebrating our color, celebrating how we move, celebrating how we walk, so that there's an extra sense of pride in everything that was being denigrated about us as we were living it in his time period during the Harlem Renaissance. He celebrated. And we can read that celebration into every piece and every fiber of our being now. And I think that those young people who are being frisked that are, that are trying to make strides by hanging out with their friends, that they can grab onto this legacy of, of beauty and sensuality and purpose and dream. And I think that that's what Langston Hughes really can offer at this particular time. He offers different things at different times, but he can offer this at this particular time. You know, so when I'm in the pulpit and I'm reading Langston Hughes and I'm talking about a young a young man being frisked, I'm going to put that in context of, well, what were the times when Jesus was, was frisked? <laughs> mm. By the Pharisees, and he was always being stopped and questioned, and and put on the put on the hot coals and on the hot seat when nobody, everybody else was just left to go and do what they wanted. What kind of inspiration can Langston speak to all of that experience? And that's those are the connections that I think Langston lays a roadmap for us to be able to sort of mine and dig out and to and to really come up with treasure for. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is so true. And I had a question. I can't understand my own handwriting. <laughs> it was about Langston and the young man being frisked. Also, how does Langston fit? You, you, you talked about how you can equate Langston to um, a dream deferred. But how? what kind of um, genre was going on as far as vaudeville? And you talked about how he made us feel proud during that time. But just give the audience a, a snippet, a snapshot of what was going on in mainstream as far as black faces in the art. Well, you know, Langston's poetry is jazz. Yes. There's a tremendous, he even writes uh, phrases that are bebop, the bop, the bop, 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 mm -hmm. full of jazz. And if you'll allow me, I'll, I'll read you this poem of his that is Note on Commercial Theater. Nice. Perfect. You've taken my blues and gone. You sing them on Broadway, and you sing them in Hollywood Bowl, and you mix them up with symphonies, and you fix them so they don't sound like me. Yeah, you done taken my blues and gone. You also took my spirituals and gone. Mm -hmm. You put me in Macbeth and Carmen Jones and all kinds of swing Mikados and in everything but what's about me. But someday 
somebody will stand up and talk about me and write about me, black and beautiful, and Mm -hmm. sing about me and put on plays about me, I reckon it'll be me myself. (laughs) Yes, it'll be me. So... I think that answers your question. Sure does. Yeah. And this is not rehearsed. This interview is not script. I just want the audience to know that we deliberately do not talk before the interview because we don't want it to be script. And I thank you. That was powerful, extremely powerful, because, you know, when I look back in that era, we have a few actors who we are ashamed of. Um, mm. And, you know, the way they were blackface and kowtow and different things of that nature. And I think Spike Lee's movie, Bamboozle, mm-hmm. um, mm. spoke to that. So, like you said, he was um, he, he was unique. He was strong. Any other poets that come out of that generation from Harlem that matches his, um, his fervor for social justice? Yeah. I'm sure. Uh, is County Cohen his his, yes, his contemporary? Yes, County Cohen is his contemporary, and he and Count Jay and a couple of other people, including um, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, actually had this one magazine that was just scathing. Um, it was a it was a it had a fire. It had a beautiful red yes fire, and that was what they were pulling together. They were actually saying, "This is our voice." Mm-hmm. You know, this is how we speak. This is what we're talking to. This is what we're speaking to. This is who we're speaking to. So Langston was also a, a key figure in the, the entire Harlem Renaissance in helping people to find their voice and sharing, listening to each other's voices that they had the opportunity to say, okay, we are now, we are the educated voices. Let us speak and let us hear what it is that one another has to say instead of asking publishers um, publishers up on Fifth Avenue, what do you think of what I'm writing? They were saying, let's write this magazine ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because we're talking about our experience. It's a great innovation and in, in self-independence and self-awareness um, that all of those contemporaries and everything that was happening. And, you know, Paul Robeson went to Columbia University uh, and got his law degree, and he specifically left NYU where he had a free ride for his law degree because he wanted to be up here. Mm. He wanted to be up in and amongst, you know, what was happening up here. And didn't, so didn't Obama go draw. to Columbia, too? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Paul Robeson also graduated from Rutgers? Yes. I'm and from he did Jersey. his undergrad at Rutgers. And, yeah, he did his undergrad at Rutgers and graduated in 1919 and then came to NYU and then left there and came came on up to um to Columbia, where he lost all of his funding, so he had to work his way through law school. Now, didn't he sing in several different languages and spoke them fluently, Paul Robeson? He actually mastered 20 languages mm. and sang in 20 languages and learned a fellow in five different languages um, just to sort of get a different artistic nuance of the feel of the language um, for different characterizations within. For example, he... He did um, Russian to bring out lyricality and the musicality of the rhymes um, mm. and, and Othello. So he learned German. He did the play in German and learned it in German so that he could get the military leader that Othello was, get that sense of sensibility through the German language. Brilliant. And they, they were all contemporaries with one another. So this is what's so wonderful about that. 
And I always said that Paul Robeson was the first Obama. He was the first mm. crossover <laughs> crossover politician. Wow. He was accepted by that. white people, black people, the working class, something similar to what we're going through right now or with the election mm. in 2008. You know, with I have an East German professor here at Union who, when I mentioned Paul Robeson, she started singing his songs. Oh, my goodness. Because those records in, in East Germany, those records and his spirituals were what brought people in East Germany through until the wall came down. Wow. Awesome. Because now, he had been popular in, in Germany before the Third Reich came in. Mm. And with that said, um, I would like to ask the two of you, and I did ask you this off the off the record, um, if you would like to perform, do you feel the vibe to perform a song, both of you, separately? Nora? Uh, well. <laughs> all right, all poems. I didn't it's up to you. I song, actually. But, um, um. Uh, do you feel comfortable? Uh, uh, I know you're on the road doing Paul Robeson. It should be fresh. Mm. Do you want to do a little piece real quick, and then we'll give Nora some time to come up with? Well, one of the, I'll just do I'll just do a quick refrain of of something, but I'll put it in context of what we do with the play. There's one section where Paul Robeson decides that he's no longer going to sing for high society people but he's only going to sing for, for people in unions and he's going to sing in jails and he's going to sing it and where Congress, where audiences can be, can be um, integrated. And as he's doing his tour throughout the country, he's realizing he goes to Pueblo and, you know, New Mexico and he sees, you know, Spanish people living in holes in the ground. He goes to West Virginia and he sees people living so far in poverty that he, and he goes to, to North Carolina and he sees sharecroppers trying to make a living, just eking a living out of the land for the tobacco barons, and it makes him sad and it depresses him. And it's that one moment where the only spiritual that fits there um, in that particular moment in the play is nobody knows the trouble I see Nobody knows the trouble I see. Glory, hallelujah! I'm sometimes up, I'm sometimes down. Sometimes level to the ground. Oh, yes, Lord. Nobody knows the trouble I see. Nobody Nobody knows the truth. 
magnificent. Mm. Yes, yes. Paul, that was Paul Robeson. And um, how can someone get in touch with you if they want to see you perform live? Um, they can actually just check in with eastwindtheater.com. Those are the producers of that play, and they do my bookings and send me all around the country. Excellent. Now, uh, Nora. Yes. Have you decided if you want to read a poem or sing? Because we know you're a singer as well. Well, I'm going to do a song from my first solo show that's called Olivia's Opus that is an ode to adolescence. Mm. And when I started working on it, I didn't have the guts enough (laughs) to actually put my name out there. So I made my character, who is me, I made her name Olivia. And there's a song uh, that happens after um, she's molested. And the song goes like this. Before you can blink an eye, time will pass you right on by. Bye-bye, time flies, takes your tears away. Circles and cycles round and round, life will take you upside down. Big girl, woman, child, nothing here is fair. You'll see the hurt goes away, but you'll learn that it's okay. Cause the more will come again another day, but there's a love and joy in between. Before you can blink an eye, you'll be me and you'll see why. Little girls have to grow as quickly as they can. Life keeps going on and on, but every time it hurts, you'll get stronger. I know, look at me, and I've been round and round. You'll learn nothing's ever fair or ever free. Justice may come, but it's never guaranteed. And I'm so sorry, that's the way it really is. Don't know why it has to be. Before you can blink an eye, time will pass you right on by. Bye-bye, time flies, takes your tears away. As time goes by, melt your tears away. As time goes by takes your tears away very very nice and uh wow, did you wow. write that yes wow okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> that's that's heavy um how will someone get in touch with you to see <laughs> that performance or anything that you're doing well i think they'll have to call you <laughs> 
<laughs> oh no. <laughs> I mean, I have an agent. I don't have a, a a a management company, but I have I have a couple of agents. But you know, and I'm on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm on okay? Facebook, and they can get in touch with you, and you can get in touch with me, and I'll send them whatever they need. Okay, that sounds sounds like um, a plan to me. Um, now I we're down to our last five minutes. Did that hour go by fast or what? Yes, it did. Wow, sure did. It really? did. Now, um, I know we talked about ending the show with um, a tribute uh, uh, to Langston. Do you still want to do that, or Derek? It's up to you all. I'm down for anything. Okay, okay. we'll go for it. Okay. Well, Nora, I'm gonna I'm gonna read this in honor of that young man. Cause this is what I want him to remember. And what I want all of our young people and all of us to remember, life is fine. (laughs) I went down to the river. I sat down on the bank. I tried to think, but couldn't. So I jumped in and sank. I came up once and hollered. I came up twice and cried. If that water hadn't have been so cold, I might have sunk and died. But it was cold in that water. It was cold. I took the elevator, 16 floors above the ground. I thought about my baby. And I thought, I jumped down. I stood there and I hollered. I stood there and I cried. If it hadn't have been so high, I might have jumped and died. But it was high up there. It was high. So since I'm still here living, I guess I will live on. I could have died for love, but for living I was born. And though you may hear me holler, and you may see me cry, I'll be doggy, sweet baby, if you're going to see me die. Life is fine. Fine is wine. Life is fine. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> well, in light of uh, the elections, I'm going to do this piece is called Puzzled. Here on the edge of hell stands Harlem. Remembering the old lies, the old kicks in the back, the old be patient they told us before. Sure, we remember. Now when the man at the corner store says sugar's gone up another two cents and bread one and there's a new tax on cigarettes, we remember the job we never had, never could get. 90 seconds. Because we're colored. So we stand here on the edge of hell in Harlem and look out on the world and wonder what we're going to do in the face of what we remember. Langston Hughes. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, the show, uh, you guys did an awesome job. You did a a great job in person, and I knew you would be perfect on my show. 60 seconds. And we're going to ignore that 60 seconds thing. (laughs) 